If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The week is half over, and that's probably a good thing. Is it too soon to hug each other? Here's Scott Thompson. Somebody do a deal. And lots of dealing to be done. A lot of chattering. No deals. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. The gang's all here. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. You can always send us a, uh, send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. We would love to hear from you. All right, let's start south of the border. Uh, U.S. midterms. Um, it sort of looks like the red. Uh, well, I'm not going to use colors because it's different from ours. <laughs> People get confused. The uh, the Trump wave that was supposed to happen didn't really happen. Uh uh, and the, the hit wasn't as hard for the Democrats. Uh, the U.S. Senate is still too close to call at this time. Uh, the House of Representatives looks like it's being taken over by uh, the Republicans, but certainly not the damage that uh, one thought uh, for the Democrats. And uh, the interesting thing, those that were endorsed by uh, Donald Trump didn't necessarily do too well. So it'll be fascinating to see if, in fact, uh, the Donald Trump momentum and phase of the Republican Party in the United States has uh, has passed us all. Here's hoping. All right, uh, this is fascinating, too. Health ministers, as you know, are all meeting, the provincial health ministers in British Columbia. The feds are supposed to be involved in that, although they are now not participating. Uh, the health minister, DeClos, says uh, the provinces just want money and accusing the premiers of uh, interfering and such. Uh, it's fascinating. Here's what the uh, B.C. health minister, Adrian Dix, had to say. To succeed in the future, to build the healthcare system we need, we need the federal government to increase its role and support for public health care and not, as has been happening for too, too long, diminish that role. We need the spirit that we came together with under COVID-19 to be the spirit that we come together with in, uh, in addressing the issues around the Canada health transfer. Amen. And uh, the health minister uh, now blaming the premiers for interfering, which is why he's not at the table now. That's not going to happen the same way we were expecting it would happen today. But the good news is, again, that we all agree on the priorities. If the premiers didn't impose marching orders on uh, my colleagues, health ministers, we would all, we'd all be together today and recognize the plan and the work ahead. Well, that's like the prime minister not imposing his views on you, <laughs> the health minister. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, anyway, here's the response from B.C. Health Minister Adrian Dix to the feds not participating. Fair enough. They didn't uh, like that the premiers reiterated their position on the Canada health transfer. That's entirely fair of the federal government to do and their expression. But I think it's disappointing. I'm not sure it sends the best message. Uh, no, it doesn't, especially when we're talking about masking again in this province and not because there's a bad Omicron or a new COVID-19 variant on the way. It's because the health system can't cope with the seasonal flus that come every fall that we haven't seen for the last two years because we've been masking. And a result, as a result, aren't necessarily immune to. 
So, you know, masking to save one's health, save one's life, uh, save the others around us, one thing. To save a health care system that these people can't get to the table and talk about, good luck selling that one to the Canadian public. Canadian public. Uh, you know, we'll do our part and save each other, but we're not saving bad management at the government level for decades. And the fact that the health ministers from all the provinces, east to west, are all there, and the feds are, oh, they just want more money. They just want more money. They're just taking marching orders from the premier, as if the health minister, uh, DeClos, federally, is not taking his marching orders from Justin Trudeau. Enough of the language. Let's get this crap done. Canadians, Ontarians, have had enough of this. Whether it's negotiations over education contracts or the lack of funding or the lack of movement on our health care system. Here's a brilliant idea. Why don't we use some of the money that's been taken in the form of carbon taxes and put that towards the health care just for even six months or a year to see what we can do? Let's see if we can actually make a dent in the health care since we're obviously not making a dent when it comes to reaching our uh, climate targets. The, the Prime Minister said we would, but really aren't. And at the end of the day, we're responsible for less than 2% of the world's greenhouse gases anyway. So why don't we take some money from our Saving the Planet Fund and put it into Saving Canadians Fund? And finally fix our ailing healthcare system, which we're all so busy puffing our chests out and saying is so much better than everybody else's. Let's save some health care. Let's save the planet next year. Education support workers and uh, the province in negotiations. We certainly know what's been happening there. Also, uh, GoBus also out. And the ATU uh, uh, held a press conference, Queen's Park, and pressured Metrolinx to get back to the table. And that's going to happen tomorrow at 2 o'clock to restart these negotiations to talk more about all of this and what the issues are. Rob Cormier is with us, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, local uh, 1587 and is with us now. Rob, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, yeah. I appreciate the time, opportunity to talk to you. So, Rob, obviously there's uh, another issue going on with the education workers, and that's uh, you know uh, drawing a lot of attention, uh, but you guys have got some issues that you want to get uh, forth as well. So uh, help the riders understand what's going on and why uh, you are striking and, and what the issues are. Well, I can uh, I can let you know that on April the 7th, we started our negotiations with Metrolinx. Um, you know, for seven months, we were back and forth with uh, proposals, what the union wanted, what the company was looking for. Our number one issue, our number one item, actually, on since day one has been uh, better language for contracting out. Um, that's been most of the press conferences. The stuff you've heard is in relation to what that means. Um, we do have language in our collective agreement that protects our, our workers that are currently on the job, but it doesn't really give protections to the job itself. What we've seen over the years is when people retire or leave the company for whatever reason, some of those jobs, largely in maintenance, um, contractors are brought in to do the work. And we're just looking for, that's, 
been our biggest problem and, and our biggest ask since the negotiations started. So it's uh, it's contracting out of, of workers, uh, replacing those that have retired, as opposed to, say, wages or any of that? Absolutely. Um, we are one of the few transit agencies that are, are legislated provincially, so wages have never been an issue. We're legislated under Bill 124, so we have a 1% cap on all our compensation, so it's never been about wages. So um, many may say, wow, is this something to bring uh, the system to a halt for, for those that retri- uh, retire? Um, is, that, is that that big of an issue? It actually has. We've seen a lot of our, our maintenance people that have left um, not be replaced. And <clears throat> a lot of them are, are maintenance workers that, uh, like our coach technicians or whatever, we see a lot of the work um, that go that goes off site that our guys are able to do, but because there's a backlog of of equipment that needs to be fixed because they haven't hired, um, that work is now going out. So, is it a case that they're not being replaced, or they're just being replaced with those that are outside the union? Uh, well, it, it's a bit of both, really. Right? Um, when a job is open and it's not filled, you got one of two things, right? And if a contractor comes on to into our shops, well, that's in violation of the collective agreement. Um, but putting it out, you know, we're finding that a lot of the work that goes out doesn't necessarily come back to the standard that it would have been done if it would have stayed in our shops. Uh, so you're saying that the work isn't as up to snuff as, say, someone is doing it, that, you know, that would have normally been there under the old umbrella. Well, you know, our coach technicians, for example, the ones that repair the, the buses, you know, they, they're a diesel mechanic, but they're also a coach technician. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of technicalities to the job. We also have body people that fix the bodies. And so we, we do have a lot of specialized trades that do the work. Uh, same with our rail guys, right? Our rail mill rights and, and track maintenance. These are guys that are very highly specialized in what they do. And, you know, the work that gets sent off site doesn't necessarily have the same qualifications. Um, is it accurate to say this seems more to be about union numbers than necessarily the workers' conditions or the service itself? Uh, not necessarily, right? It's, it, it's not about our numbers. It's about ensuring that what goes out for the public is the optimal in terms of safety. Uh, Metrolinx has a great safety record, and, and you know we take great pride in saying that our members are a, the mo- main reason that that's been maintained for so long. And you know we don't want to see that tarnished by getting contractors to do the work. Are the contractors not held to the same standard? Well, you send it off off site, and they you know they're given a, a work order as to what needs to be completed. Um, you know, I can't say what their standards are, but I know what ours are. And, you know, I hear from a lot of our members on the floor that when it comes back, it probably wouldn't have been accepted on our floors. So where does this go from here, Rob? Where are you? Uh, Obviously negotiations start Thursday. What are you hoping to, what are you hoping to accomplish? What I'm hoping to accomplish is, is to get a contract, right? Um, the public is suffering. The services aren't available for them. The, bu- the trains still are, but the buses, which, you know, service a lot of the universities throughout the, the province, uh, they're not running. And, you know, 
that is largely what our what we do, and the last thing we want to do is inconvenience them. Um, you know, like I've said in a lot of other facets of the media, we were in a legal strike position on October the first. We were legally able to go out on October first. We had set a strike date for October thirty first, and we pulled it back. We let our members look at the proposal that Metrolinx gave us, and you know, it came back 81% rejection. Uh, we bargained all last weekend, hoping to get some sort of resolution. And now, you know, we executed on a strike. And ultimately, you know, there were no rash decisions made here. We thought that we were a lot closer and that we'd be able to come to some sort of agreement. And, you know, it's it's time to get back to the table, time to get this thing wrapped up and, and resume service so that the public isn't inconvenienced any longer. Rob Cormier with us, president of Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 1587. Talks with Metrolinx resume tomorrow, Thursday at 2 o'clock. Good luck, Rob. Uh, Thanks. I appreciate the time. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Premiers are forcing my colleagues to speak only of one thing and one thing only, money. All that premiers keep saying is that they want an unconditional increase in the Canada health transfer sent to their finance ministers. I don't see why that's a surprise to anybody. All they want is money. That's that's the magic uh, bullet here, is it not? Is money uh, that, of course, in a new template to uh, you know try to figure out new and more effective ways of doing things? But yeah, at the end of the day, when initially uh, Canadian Medicare started, uh, the government, federal government, was paying fifty percent, uh, fifty cents on the dollar. Now they're paying twenty-two cents on the dollar. And whenever you want to talk about fixing health care, all they do is bring up dental care. Well, let's create another situation that we'll have the same amount of problem with in I don't know a decade's time. Let's build the same thing on. Uh, uh, let's bring the same thing on on the same template. It, it just seems uh, it seems bizarre. But anyway, uh, what is happening is uh, out west in British Columbia, uh, the health minister there is hosting all of the province's health ministers, and uh, the feds were a part of that. And then uh, I guess they got upset because the premiers got involved. Uh, and started to tell them what to say as if the prime minister is telling the federal health minister what to say. Uh, and here we are. And this is the last thing people want to hear. People want, and, and, and you know, this on, well, this what we're talking about today, how people are feeling about masking. Not because there's a deadly virus, not because there's a deadly variant of COVID-19, but because our healthcare system can't handle the seasonal flu or the respiratory illness that the kids are all uh, going through right now. So that's why we're being asked to think about masking. It's to save the health care, not people. That's sad. And it's time to realize that our health system is not great. It's not great in any way. The people are. But unfortunately, they're on their knees right now. And they're asking for help. And we're too busy saving the planet. Imagine if we took some of those carbon dollars, those carbon tax dollars, and fixed health care. Can we fix health care before we save the planet? Can we save health care before we save the planet? I know. That's silly, Scott. Those are two different, two different issues, two totally different stratospheres. Stratosphere. But really, is this a priority or is this just more window dressing? 
like everything else is. People are tired of this. They want action. And here we got everybody in the room, and it's all about money. Well, of course it's about money. And if, if, the, if the feds can't pay for it, how the hell are the provinces supposed to pay for it? Really? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thank you. I'm going to stop ranting now, Henry. <laughs> um, honestly, uh, people, I'm sure, are getting tired of the politics of all of this. Uh, of course, it's about money when you used to have pay half, and now you're only paying 22%. What else would it be about? So how do we, how do we now that we've got them all in the same room, how do we actually make them sharpen their pencils and get something done? Well, I think it's going to be a bit drawn out here for a bunch of reasons, but uh, there's just different different goals that the, the two government the two levels of government have at this point. Uh, obviously, the fe- the provincial governments are worried about you know you know meeting the type of co- you know pressures that are on them because of the the health of the population. And yeah, you're right. It, it, they had, over the years the federal government has dropped the amount of money. Uh, in percentage terms that it gives for health care so they've got a they've got a certainly a, a good beef there the federal government though it right now says it's willing to give a lot more money but they want a say in exactly what you're going to spend the money on and they're fear they're fearful if they hand over a, a, blank, a check to the government uh... of the provinces they there's no control over how once they have the check how you know what they're going to do with it and so I've heard. I've an heard agreement about what are you going to spend this money on, and I, that's that's the uh, you know right now where the two sides are. Is it really about uh, what they're going to spend the money on, or who gets to take credit for the project? Because as I've asked more experts, that's the deeper we get into this. Is that no? I want you to do this. For example, mm. come up with a database that's nationwide, which everybody would say that's probably a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. But again. It's not a top issue in the sense where, how do I get my family doctor? How do we get the emergency room uh, times down? How do we get surgery times down? I mean, those are the real pressing issues. Uh, not coming up with a database. That should be on the agenda, but it's not the most important. Well, I think, the, I think, I think certainly the, the you know, uh, people would, would certainly agree with that, but they want what, what the gov- provincial government, I'm sorry, the federal government wants to do is say, okay, if you, if you think that's your big need, Say family uh, family doctors. Okay, uh, tell us tell us how much money you need, why you need it, and that you are going to. If we give you this, uh, give you extra money, uh, then you know you're going to have to write out and say this is what we're going to spend it on. And uh, there actually is two components here. One is the uh, is, is increasing the percentage, but the fe- the federal government also wants to have individual you know, relationships or contracts with each of the provinces. Because the various provinces have different type of needs. Yeah. So, he's, so he wants, they want to they, they do it. And you're right, it's, it's, it's certainly both sides uh, want to get the credit for it. And I think oftentimes you do. I mean, I've seen plenty of times when the federal and provincial government have, ha- you know, have, have uh, you know, supported a, some endeavor, and you've got a federal minister, you've got a provincial minister, or you may have uh, the pr- premier of Ontario with the prime minister, and they're both getting credit for it. So yeah, I mean, you just, uh, I mean, it's just part of, uh, it's just part of the job is that. If they're, you know, all, you know, the leaders of governments want to get credit for whatever. Money that being said, Hen- 
Yeah. That being said, Henry, that being said, we've right. got every single province at that table and pretty much with every political stripe. I mean, it's right. being hosted by an NDP province. There's liberals, there's conservatives right. there. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all of the provinces from all of the different stripes and one federal government. Yeah. Um, we should be able to get this done. When you're talking about they don't know where the money's going. Do we know where our carbon tax money's going? And again, I'm not trying to be a, a, a climate denier or any of that crap or an extreme right uh, wingist or, or winger or any of that sort of stuff. But, okay. but you know, we don't know where a lot of our tax dollars are going. Do we know where our our carbon tax dollars are going? Should Do you think from a Canadian perspective, we'd rather see some of that money? I mean, we're all trying to save the planet. We know we got to save the planet, uh, Henry. But what about saving our health care system here? Yeah, well, I think they both, I think they both agree on that. It's a question, though, they have different different interests of the best way to do that, and they want to put it. You know, the federal government wants to put it in writing, and also uh, what I haven't talked about, of course, is that the, this, the timing, the delay is doesn't, doesn't you know, and the demands don't uh, surprise me because I would, I'm sure the federal government would prefer to have most of the money flowing, you know, two years down the road when they're closer to an election. And that's true, again, for every government. There are some governments that need the money right away because they're very unpopular. Saskatchewan, uh, sorry, Manitoba. The Manitoba government's terribly unpopular, and the people there, the major issue is the health care, and they have to have an election within, you know, within a year. And they're, they're, they're dying for money, so it's very important for them to get it. Uh, the federal government, though, is not going to have an election for three years, two to three years, so they can take their time in in doing this so you know but we're hearing too henry that we haven't even received the money from the last election promises yeah well that may not be true the provincial governments can point that out and i'm sure they will but the federal government like any government wants wants to be able to see show people they're spending money on something that people really want and it's close to an election in in the front side of the election mm-hmm. and there's not you know you, it's very very hard to change to change that dynamic people just don't want to give away money they're not going to get uh, credit for and you know as i said that all politicians are like that so magically the healthcare system will be fec- uh, will be fixed around the next election well <laughs> i mean the thing i know is, what you're saying you, yeah. you may have some of the provinces say will break ranks with the others and say i want to make a deal now with the federal government and they'll go their own way they'll break their solidarity right now they're all together, but, you know, the, the federal government might say, well, I'm willing, if somebody wants to come in and show me what they need money for, and they make the case, and they promise to spend it on it, well, maybe we can give it to them now, because, first of all, it'll be concrete. So if they want to spend money on, say, family, getting more family doctors, then they're going to want to have a joint press conference with the, the federal government in a particular province, and we say, we're both on this side, and we're both contributing and the and the, you know the prime minister wants to say how much money I'm giving. I'm sure you know. I'm sure they would consider that, but it has to be concrete. You know, this is what the this is where the money is going to go. Uh, if if we were closer to a federal election, mm. I'm sure the, they would get you know the provincial provincial governments would get checks that were you know without all the all the right. strings attached to it. But they right now they they have they have to put up with the uh, you know with what the federal government wants to. Uh, 
wants to give them, and uh, you know, it's it's really they've got it. And no election, yeah, no election on the horizon. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. As always, Henry, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Ontario's plan to build homes in the Greenbelt, which the Tory government vowed it would not do, includes 1,900 acres to protect uh, of protected farmland and natural lands in Hamilton. Let's bring in Mike, Collin, Will, Mike Collins-Williams, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association, and with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great, Scott. Thank so, you in your opinion, in your opinion, Mike, why uh, is this? Why is there a change in position here? Why is this happening? Well, we know, thanks to the Ontario's affordable the housing affordability task force, along with third-party verification from groups like Ottawa Smart Prosperity Institute or, or research from the Scotia Bank, that the housing shortfall that's been persistent over the last decade is just getting worse, and we need a lot more housing to restore balance to the market. In Ontario alone, we need to build 1.5 million more homes in the next decade to restore that supply to the market and bring back affordability. And, you know, we even have bipartisan recognition of this during the spring provincial election. All four parties, the NDP, the Liberals, the Greens and the PCs, all campaigned on the need for 1.5 million homes. Now, I recognize they would all have different perspectives on how to get there. But I think there's fundamental agreement that, you know, we really are in a supply crunch and we know that we need more housing. Unfortunately, a lot of the local politics means many cities will go to great lengths to prevent housing from being built. And you know, this is why we find ourselves in a situation today with some pretty significant provincial intervention in Hamilton's official plan. You mentioned the Green Belt and of course, Bill 23, which was tabled last week. Uh, infield uh, fill versus expanding the urban boundary. Can this all be accomplished with just using what we have? It can't. We really need to do both. Um, Hamilton's professional planning staff at City Hall recommended to the previous council that a boundary expansion was absolutely necessary. Uh, council did not listen to that professional advice and actually went out and uh, sought a, a third-party peer-reviewed report. And guess what? That peer-reviewed report also said we needed an urban boundary expansion. And it's really about having more choice and diversity in the marketplace. Um, we need a lot of infill. Um, there's great opportunities in downtown Hamilton. Um, the Ford government actually changed Hamilton's official plan. It's not just the boundary expansion. Uh, they got rid of the height limit. There was a 30-story height limit across Hamilton. That's now gone. So we're going to see a lot more taller buildings built. Uh, Hamilton's official plan was also changed for areas... Um, along the entire blast network. We're going to see a lot more infill and intensification there. And the previous council also did some strange things like uh, uh, putting additional protections uh, so that there wouldn't be intensification in certain neighborhoods. So the Ford government has eliminated the previous council's decision on exempting Ancaster from Hamilton's city-wide community nodes policy. So there's a variety of puzzle pieces here that includes both an expansion area for those more greenfield, uh, lower density communities, as well as a lot more intensification than we've ever seen in the city before. So, Mike, is this really NIMBYism versus anti those that are the anti-boundary expansion? It's like those that don't want it in the infill versus those that don't want the boundary expanded. And is that not how we got here in the first place? 
it's it's a little how we got into this mess in the first place and it, it's not just hamilton it's been right across southern ontario um the politics around housing are borderline toxic if it's within an existing neighborhood uh, there's a lot of nimbyism and pushback from any intensification um if it's a new expansion area to uh to bring about a different housing typology um there's a lot of opposition to that as well and the local interest is not necessarily the public interest especially when we're dealing with a housing crisis growing population and increasingly our our youngest our best and brightest are are leaving i mean we're seeing advertisements from the government of alberta encouraging young people yeah. to just pick up and leave ontario um this is why the province has intervened in um such a bold fashion and yes there is pushback certainly uh recognize that uh, we only got about 30 seconds left. What message do you want Hamiltonians to take away from this? That bold intervention was necessary. Um, the local politics around housing is challenging, um, but we're going to see a lot of change in Hamilton's future. And I know the focus has been on the boundary expansion, but Hamilton's neighborhoods, the downtown, there is going to be a lot more intensification like we've never seen before. All right, Mike Collins Williams with us, CEO West End Home Builders Association, and talking about the ever uh, need for housing. Yet nobody wants to really uh, take responsibility for building it. Mike, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Europe bracing for an influx of Ukrainian uh, immigrants, uh, especially as winter approaches and Russia continues to attack uh, Ukraine infrastructure, including uh, mass power outages as a result of this. Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies, uh, Center for European and Russian and Eurasian Studies at the University of Toronto and with us now. Matthew, thanks for your time. I hope you're uh, well. Great to be with you. Give us a bit of an update here. Uh, we're hearing of mass uh, attacks on infrastructure, literally uh, power outages, and in a very, very tough winter on the way for those in Ukraine. Um, yes, it, it, that's all true. Um, the overall picture is is much more complicated, though, and has um, some important elements that are pointing in other directions. So you're quite correct that the Russians have um, begun um, a, a new sort of um, strategy of targeting Ukrainian um, civilian power generating and and uh, water infrastructure and have caused a lot of hardship among the civilian population. Uh, I think this is clearly a, a war crime, by the way. Um, hmm. It is uh, indeed quite disruptive. Um, there is also some talk that at some point Kiev may become uninhabitable if this goes on, which would require the Ukrainian authorities to evacuate the population. Um, the concern that, that Ukraine might um, also see another exodus of its citizens to other European countries is certainly within the realm of the possibility, of possibility, but at the moment does not seem to be materializing. Um, Ukraine has done so, so far quite well in terms of managing the harms caused by this um, Russian bombardment. Um, it's also worth pointing out that in, in previous such episodes, such as in World War II, um, aerial bombardment of cities did not achieve its objective of bringing about um, an end to the war on the, on the terms of the aggressor. Um, there is another factor which we need to bring in here too, which is that Ukraine is achieving some significant successes on the battlefield. Um, so it's still waiting for confirmation, but it appears that the Russians have abandoned the city of Kherson, which is an important strategic point in Ukraine south and the only capital of a Ukrainian province that they've occupied so far in this conflict. 
Um, if true, that is a significant victory for Ukraine and um, probably will further strengthen the resolve of the Ukrainian um, military and citizens to um, continue with the war effort. Uh, you use the word managing. How long can they manage this this way, especially if they have to evacuate Kiev? Well, I think it's I think whether they will have to evacuate Kiev is still speculative. Um, I think, you know, right now they seem to be pursuing policies such as rolling rolling blackouts and, and um, scheduling water shutoffs in particular parts of cities. Um, there's no doubt it's a hardship. I think Ukrainians, compared to, say, Canadians, are more used to dealing with this kind of hardship. And um, there's also very strong support for the government's basic policy in the war. Um, whether it will at some point become unbearable, particularly as the, the weather gets colder, is, is a fair question. Um, Ukraine has also been negotiating with its Western partners for, for delivery of uh, more sophisticated um, equipment that might help them um, blunt this, uh, these Russian attacks. Uh, obviously, it seems that the equipment, the, the help that's coming in is just allowing them to hold their own or have these minor, vi- minor victories. I don't mean to be pessimistic with this at all, but who burns out the other first? because it seems that it's going to be a marathon. Yes, um, I think that's a fair question. Um, It does not seem very feasible for Russia to achieve its um, objectives on the battlefield. And the fact that they're now surrendering a major prize that they won early in the war, the city of Kherson, um, is further evidence of that. Uh, They also seem to be trying to persuade Western public opinion and Western leaders to compel Ukraine to... Uh, engage in a round of negotiations now um, that would uh, presumably entail Ukraine agreeing to sort of freeze the situation on the battlefield, so leaving leaving Russia in possession of areas that it's currently occupying. I don't think I would agree with the premise of the question, though, that Ukraine's victories are minor. Um, not so long ago, they essentially routed the Russian forces in Kharkiv region um, on eastern Ukraine, which is what precipitated the, the subsequent um, mobilization of some new, um, apparently very ill-prepared and ill-equipped soldiers by the Russian government. So um, I think, you know, Ukraine believes that with continued Western support, it can make it impossible for Russia to um, prevail and can gradually roll back uh, Russia's territorial conquests. I think there is strong evidence of that. Um, It does depend on Western governments continuing to supply Ukraine with both the military um, equipment that they need, as well as as to continue financing Ukrainian government, which is facing a huge economic crisis as a result of uh, the catastrophic invasion. At the same time, we probably shouldn't overestimate the advantages that Russia has. And Russia is also experiencing some severe economic disruptions as a result of the sanctions on important um, components to its its, uh, manufacturing and other uh, economic activities. Um, And there are signs of dissatisfaction within both the population and the elite about um, the failure to conquer Ukraine, um, which probably will only be accentuated as a result of the surrender of Kherson. Uh, and we've only got about 30 seconds left here. Uh, any Are peace talks an option at all here? Well, Ukraine's position, which I find persuasive, is that at the moment there's not much to talk about. Um, Russia yeah. is continuing to try to annex Ukrainian territory. They just annexed four more regions um, not, 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 not long ago. Um, they've also continued to carry out these serious war crimes. So that suggests to Ukrainians that Russia is not interested in any kind of real agreement with them. It just wants to um, have a pause to review. Matthew Light with his Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, University of Toronto. Matthew, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
My pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know because, boy, if you turn on any U.S. Uh, television over the last uh, 24, 72 hours or, or maybe even several weeks, uh, the U.S. midterms uh, have uh, come and gone yesterday, although they're still kind of hanging on because there's still, I guess, some uh, unresolved issues. Uh, some were predict- predicting a Republican sweep, a Donald Trump sweep, but it appears that the candidates that were endorsed by Donald Trump didn't necessarily uh, do as well as originally thought. Uh, let's break it all down and see where we are now. Reggie Giacchini is with us, our Washington correspondent for Global News, and he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So what's the latest here, Reggie? Uh, it looks like uh, uh, we've got one, but not uh, the U.S. Senate still too close to call. Give us a bit of an update here. Yeah, so the the House is leaning Republican uh, at this point. Uh, there are a number of races that are still being uh, kind of counted because there are so many ballots that are still outstanding across uh, a vast majority of the states, including uh, Arizona, where in Maricopa County, there's about 500,000 ballots that they are still trying to count in the Senate. That is also uh, kind of a razor tight race uh, at the moment. The Democrats able to flip Pennsylvania, but Georgia is headed to a runoff. So we won't know what's happening in that Senate race until uh, uh, December. Uh, the Arizona race, obviously, that's held up with those hundreds of thousands of ballots. Nevada is also expected to take several days. Uh, and all of this is important because these Senate races are ultimately going to determine who has control. Democrats, uh, Republicans need to flip two. Democrats want to stay where they are or at least get one extra and many surprised that it is still as close as it is uh predictions before all this saw republicans making gains Sure. And I think that uh, what we're hearing now is that the pollsters may have kind of missed out on uh, a key segment of the population, and that was the younger vote. The younger vote did turn out uh, for Democrats. Obviously, abortion was a key issue for the Democrats going into this midterm election. It is something that a vast majority of the younger population was holding on to. And that vote uh, was missed in a lot of the polling. That is why we saw Democrats uh, make such significant uh, kind of gains or take such you know, less severe losses over the course uh, of the election, you know, that red wave kind of more of a red tide. And while Republicans are going to gain control, likely uh, they are and, you know, will be able to open up investigations or or slow down the agenda. There will be far fewer Republicans than what they had thought they were going to go in with a majority. Will we see candidates disputing results as we did during the last election? I mean, look, it's very possible. There was more than 160 um, election deniers on the ballot. And, you know, well, roughly 85, maybe 90 of them uh, weren't successful in their races. That means that, you know, at least double that, uh, at least another 85 or 90 uh, are potentially in a state level or federal level uh, office. So there is an opportunity here for that kind of playbook that happened before 2020 to deny an election even before it took place uh, if, a, if a vote doesn't go in that direction. And we saw that yesterday, Scott, in, in, uh, in Arizona, where there was a, a bit of an issue with the ballot tabulators uh, made by Dominion voting systems. Some of them weren't tabulating properly, so they had to be counted by hand. And the right immediately grabbed onto that with baseless claims uh, of fraud or some kind of nefarious activity. So, you know, that was while the vote was going on. As these delays continue, as the votes need to be counted, you know, it's it's almost expected that we are going to hear those kinds of comments. Uh, How are the Democrats uh, accepting this? Um, It's not as bad as they thought, but it still is, is, is very close. What does this mean for the future, the next couple of years for Biden? 
Well, I mean, look, the president uh, is speaking right now, uh, and he he came out about you know fifteen minutes ago and said, you know, well, the, well, the the results aren't fully in yet. He he touted the fact that Democrats didn't do as poorly as the polls had predicted, but he also talked about the significant gains that were made across the party, and that's further down at the state level. The governor races uh, uh, had the Democrats had the best governors races since the mid nineteen eighties. They flipped the uh, Maryland Republican governor to a Democrat. They flipped Massachusetts Republican governor to uh, a Democrat. And at the same time, they also uh, put in place the first openly lesbian governor now in Massachusetts. Democrats also voted in the youngest uh, Democrat, 25 years old from Generation Z. So while they didn't have the gains to keep them in control, the vote that did come out for them uh, allows them to say, look, this was not as significant a loss as it could be. And Biden says that, you know, Americans spoke last night saying that Republicans need to work with him and also that he needs to work with Republicans. What about the Donald Trump factor? The last couple of days, we've been hearing him baiting audiences, uh, whether he is or he's not, or he might, or maybe you're going to make an announcement next week. What about his candidates or the ones he endorsed? Obviously, he's still picking fights with the Florida governor. Sure. Uh, I mean, look, on, on his candidates, a lot of them, you know, didn't fare very well uh, and, and lost pretty significantly last night in their races. And that could potentially weigh heavily on the president's, the former president's um, looming announcement that, you know, could dip his toes into the 2024 race. There are advisors to the president, Jason Miller being one of them, who in the last hour or so told a right leaning network uh, that he's going to advise Donald Trump to potentially not make an announcement until after the Georgia runoff in uh, December, fearful that, you know, it could drive out maybe a Democratic base here. So we don't know what Donald Trump's intentions, uh, you know, are going to be until we actually hear him speak. At the same time, Ron DeSantis's victory last night, as massive as it was, is going to provide another hurdle for Donald Trump to have to clear as DeSantis kind of positions himself to be the kind of new future for the Republican Party. Are Republicans uh, taking a pause at this point and, and perhaps saying to themselves, maybe Donald Trump doesn't have as much control as we thought he did, and it's time to separate ourselves from, uh, from the Donald, Trump, uh, Donald Trumps of the world? Is the Republican Party there yet? I think there are very likely internal conversations that are happening to try and, and determine what they are going to do to move forward. Because, again, this was uh, this was a former president and a leader of the party that so many of the uh, members of that party kind of uh, uh, knelt before to you know ensure that they were able to get his endorsement. Well, after we saw what happened yesterday, that endorsement oftentimes doesn't carry the weight that it once used to. So this is going to kind of put the Republicans into a bit of a reckoning here. Uh, you know, if they gain some kind of control in Congress, uh, are they going to try and find themselves new leadership to carry forward with them? These these are things that they have to determine, you know, before Donald Trump makes an announcement and then potentially after Trump makes an announcement. When will we have final results? When we when will we know the the uh, complexion of the U.S. Senate or the House? I mean, it's going to take days. As we said, Maricopa County alone has 500,000 ballots. California has 38 days to certify its uh, election ballots. And given the fact that Georgia is going into a runoff that doesn't take place until December, uh, there's a real opportunity here that we don't get a kind of crystal clear picture on the control part of, of Congress 
until closer to Christmas. And, you know, that's going to obviously kind of lend into those, you know, conversations about election conspiracies and fraud, because the more the delay occurs, the more it could whittle down uh, a lead that one party has. We saw this, Scott, back in in 2020 uh, in Pennsylvania, where there was a giant Republican lead. It was a, a bit of a mirage that, you know, became more blue as more ballots were counted. So this is going to take days, if not weeks, and it is going to lead to tensions and potential, you know, baseless claims that both the American public and both parties are going to have to try and navigate. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Reggie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Tony, can we build another million and a half homes that it's going to stabilize the market, but I don't see how it's going to make houses affordable. Because where, where are you going to build these houses? I, I, I mean, no one's going to give you land for free. And then you got to put in development costs and all the trades. Like, unless these things are going to go for four or $500,000, which I doubt they will, they're not going to be affordable. So I would like to, can you guys bring somebody on and have them explain how it's going to be affordable? Uh, <laughs> Uh, if they if they build uh, another whatever uh, boundary, open up boundaries, build another development in Hamilton, uh, it ain't going to make that big of a change in the housing because every city is depleted. Every city has a low supply. And it's like oranges at the grocery store. If there's a whole pile of oranges, if there's oranges everywhere, they're cheap. If there's not very many oranges, everybody wants one, the price of an orange goes up. It's the same thing with housing. The unfortunate thing, it takes a long time to build. So the fact that we haven't built for the last 10, 20, 30, 30 years because of these sort of fights, uh, now we're behind the eight ball. Uh, will an, addition 50, an additional 50,000 houses in Hamilton change the price of a house that much? Probably not. It'll stabilize it. But again, if there's a high demand and low supply, people will pay more for that low supply. High supply, then it levels out. It's uh, it's pretty easy. Thanks, Tony. Gus uh, has brought up a good point, too, on this. My name's Gus. I just wanted to mention the fact that, you know, there's nothing wrong with medium, uh, high-rise buildings, medium-rise buildings in a neighborhood, if that's the way the neighborhood was initially planned. But when you're living in a neighborhood and all of a sudden they plan to uh, build a high-rise apartment with no change to the infrastructure, that's where the issue is. That's where I disagree with it. That makes total sense from Gus. Uh, you know, you've got an empty spot there. Do you put a park there and uh, help the people that are there uh, make it ni- uh, nicer? Or do you build a, uh, you know, a high rise that's going to tax the infrastructure of the local system? So that makes sense as well. But we're talking about building new houses here, new developments. And they can be built state-of-the-art. The Emergencies Act inquiry continues. Um, I'm not sure how much more we're going to learn over the course of this, but let's get an update from Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you. So your thoughts on where we are right now, Duff, at the beginning of all this, when we heard uh, former police chief slowly of the Ottawa Police Service uh, testifying, it sort of, you know, we heard of uh, no plan B, not really getting the intelligence and such. Has the storyline changed much over the course of this? Uh, just details coming out, I think, yeah. what we've seen. Um, there was, you know, lots of talk that it seemed like really the Ottawa police just didn't do their job. We didn't know to what extent, obviously, because now we've seen the communications between 
the Ottawa Police and the RCMP and the OPP and have seen that they, there was just really, I think, um, despite his defense, uh, the chief Ottawa police chief was just not cooperating very well and could have done a lot more to get the OPP and RCMP helping much earlier on and uh, would have resolved the situation much sooner than it was. It seems that at this stage we're talking more about the border crossings uh, such, at Win- such as at Windsor and such, uh, which seems to be pretty much a different uh, kettle of fish than what was going on in Ottawa and perhaps a different urgency to get those borders open. Well, urgency based on the volume of trade with the U.S. that uh, crosses those border uh, crossings, especially at Windsor, every single day, um, really... Uh, I think was the reason that uh, Doug Ford declared a a state of emergency uh, to uh, try and get that uh, cleared away. And, and also of course, we're seeing a dispute over uh, whether Ford Ford has won the right not to testify, but still looks like he's hiding by not testifying before the commission uh, about the overall circumstances. And we're seeing some of the, Transcripts come out of communications between the Prime Minister, the Mayor of Ottawa, and and Ford's office. Uh, And, you know, he declared an emergency himself, so he should be testifying as to why he thought that was justified, but uh, may not have been justified at the federal level, or what he really thought about it. He thinks that it was justified, but but why? And, And why was the OPP able to deal with that situation in Windsor, but uh, they couldn't deal with the situation in Ottawa? Um, I'm guessing because three different uh, levels of government with the RCMP and the OPP and the Ottawa Police Service. But um, the, yeah, the and, fact that the borders... called to, to clear it up and say, you know, let's make it clear who has jurisdiction in this location that is the subject to a lot of protests so that we don't have the situation in the future. And one police force knows it can step in and it has the resources to stop something like this from happening again. You know, there's nothing wrong with blocking roads. It's done a lot as protests. Uh, by protesters but to block them for as long as they did uh honking horns and also uh, walking around the surrounding blocks and harassing people uh that is illegal and uh and even any road blockade is illegal uh, but usually protesters move after they've made their point and in this case they decided not to move making the situation even more clearly illegal uh, what about the, does this point matter that the borders were actually open the day before the Emergency Act was called? No, I think it makes, it, it is a, a big point. It shows that uh, if things have been done properly, that uh, the Emergencies Act powers were not needed. Um, although uh, there is an issue of foreign money coming into the country, uh, supporting uh, advocacy efforts and and illegal protests, and that is an issue where they they could have had probably and we'll probably hear more about this still uh, cooperation from the banks in freezing accounts without the use of the Emergencies Act, and and that's another issue to be explored uh, more fully. And I think we'll see uh, more testimony about that in the coming weeks. But the fact that the, the OPP was able to uh, close down the protests at the border. That just shows it, it really was a failure of, of, I think, mostly the Ottawa police from all the evidence we've had so far. And that's why it should be cleared up as to uh, who has jurisdiction 
over the parliamentary precinct and in front of the parliament buildings so that it won't uh, it won't happen again and yeah here's here's hoping it. here's hoping that at least a plan b comes out of this uh for the future that's for sure duff Conagher yeah, with his co-founder the, the commissioner really has this issue now of okay is police failure enough reason to then bring in the emergencies act to get yeah. the police cooperating yeah, and that's a big yeah. question for the commissioner to ponder it's, it's a difficult question to answer Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, talking about the Emergencies Act inquiry. As always, Duff, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, and talk about all things uh, technology, including uh, Facebook not having a real great time with their new company and them and Twitter uh, talking about layoffs. Carmi Levy with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So why did Zuckerberg create this new company? Why did he change the branding of this and not well, go with answer, Facebook? Yeah, the answer is definitely in the name, right? He calls it Meta, uh, and it was introduced just over a year ago. The reason being, it stands for the Metaverse, which is really what Mark Zuckerberg is staking the entire future of the organization on. Uh, you know, we are reaching the point where social media has pretty much gotten as big as it's going to get. We all have Facebook accounts. We all have phones stuffed with all sorts of different social media apps and chances of another one kind of arriving anytime soon and taking its place among the big boys is fairly slim. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're already spending huge amounts of time scrolling through our feeds. What more can we do? So growth figures at Facebook have been slackening off for the past couple of years. And in fact, over the last quarter, they've actually flatlined. So user base is not growing. They're not making more money off of them. Their, their revenue is falling. Their margins are falling. Essentially, it's a business disaster. If you look at the uh, share price, it's down two thirds over the last year. So, you know, Mark Zuckerberg last year around this time decided, okay, we've got to do something major. We can't just hold on to the sinking social media ship. We've got to figure out what's next. So their bet is on the metaverse. And he's basically using Meta as the company to develop this new technology. Their, their app is called Horizon Worlds, and it's supposed to be immersive. You put on these mixed reality goggles, right. and it takes you into this world. Sounds cool, sounds promising, but really we're at very early days yet. They've already spent tens of billions of dollars on it. They're going to spend tens of billions of dollars more each year for the following number of years, and they're still not going to realize revenue off of it. Everyone's kind of freaking out, and the company needs to rein in their costs, hence getting rid of 11,000 people today. That's the answer, at least in the near term. But I tell you, if the metaverse doesn't pick up where social media leaves off, uh, then we're probably going to see more layoffs from Meta in the months and years to come. So the metaverse is not taking off. Why is it not taking off? Why is this not raising eyebrows for people? Well, it's one of those technologies that's looking for a problem. If you ask 10 people what the metaverse is, you'll get 10 very different answers. You know, everyone knows what a smartphone is. Everybody knows what Facebook is. They've kind of locked in on the definition. These are the killer apps of our modern digital age. The metaverse is not quite there yet. It, it still isn't really understood by consumers. And no one really understands why they should go out and spend four figures on a on a virtual reality headset and then spend Lord knows how much more on subscriptions to feed this thing every day for something that quite frankly, and I've tried it, it makes me nauseous. So, so you know, <laughs> in your opinion, Carmi, what is it then? Is it a game or is it a virtual experience? Is it both? It, 
It's, it's a bit of both. So it's a virtual experience. So rather than experiencing the technology on a flat screen as we and, you know, scrolling vertically, as we do with social media today, we put this headset on and we can literally walk up through this virtual space and we can interact with our virtual friends. They have avatars, you have avatars. They kind of look kind of creepy and they operate kind of creepy. It's very digitized and weird at this point. Um, but the sort of the, the idea is that you go into this immersive environment and it's so real. The, 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 the fidelity is so high that you feel like you're part of it. Uh, back in the day, anyone who ever might have used Second Life, it's kind of like that only on a whole other level. Um, the problem is, is that when are we realistically going to use that? I can use my smartphone pretty much any time. I just pull it out of my yeah. pocket, take a quick look and whatever. When am I really going to put on a headset and cut myself off from the real world so that I can involve myself in the virtual one? It's just one of those use cases I just don't see happening. Sitting around the, the kitchen table having dinner, everybody wearing a helmet? I don't think so. So what he's saying is his virtual world is better than the real one you're in. Because at the end of the day, as you said, like, remember distracted driving, what that is? Well, that's trying to do too many things at once. Dealing with the uh, technological world and the real world. You can't do that. It, uh, it, so now we're just eliminating the real world. Are people really wanting to do that? I think they want to engage and then have uh, technology enhance it, not get rid of the old world. Do you think that he, he's off the mark here? I think he is. And it's interesting because there's a subtle difference between virtual reality and augmented reality. Virtual reality is you put the headset on and you're cut off from what's on, going on around you. So, of course, you can't use it outside. You can't use it when you're out and about. Whereas augmented reality would be having uh, a, a, you know, a camera system, a display of some sort built into your glasses, which would then display content in 3D space in front of you. So instead of having to pull out a smartphone and look at a flat screen, you would actually see it displayed right in front of you as you walk down the street, which sounds kind of cool. And I'm thinking that has promise if it can be rolled out in an appropriate manner, cost-effective, safe, all that good stuff. So some of these pieces are promising. Is it something that we should buy into lock, stock, and barrel just because Mark Zuckerberg says so? Well, he's kind of fearing for his future legacy. So I'm, I'm going to vote no. Um, but at the same time, I'm also going to keep my eyes open for some of these less intrusive technologies, maybe not quite as grandiose as the metaverse, but still helpful because anything that allows me to, you know, look up things or do things or make a quick call while I'm, say, walking the dog and my hands are otherwise occupied, I would pay money for that, not the VR headset. Does he have a vision we can't see or has he <laughs> just discovered something that we don't need? I think there's a bit of that. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has always been a visionary. Let's face it, if he wasn't a visionary, yeah. we would have never gotten Facebook. So yep. I have to give the guy credit. He did change the way we communicate online. So, you know, good on you, Mark. Um, but I, I think he does have a vision. I just don't think he's done a particularly good job articulating it. And I also don't think he expected the business, the legacy social media business that was going to fund the development of this next generation business. I don't think he expected it to collapse so quickly. Remember, even just a couple of years ago, Meta was, or Facebook then, was making huge amounts of money because we were all using our apps because we were all stuck at home. We were all ordering things online. Advertisers mm. loved it. Revenue was going up. Not the case anymore. They're pulling back because now we're going back to something of a normal life. So I think he has a vision for that. The problem is the world's moving faster than he can articulate it. And as a result, he finds himself in this very frightening valley between the past and the future. There's no guarantee he's going to be able to make it uh, all the way across. Uh as usual, Carmi, we're almost out of time. But what do you think Elon Musk? Or sorry, what do you think Zuckerberg thinks of Elon Musk and what he's doing? 
<laughs> I think he's kind of glad that Elon Musk has a bit of a dumpster fire going on on his side of the social media <laughs> fence because it diverts attention away from him. So he's probably thanking his lucky stars that he's not the only, you know, big billionaire who's kind of weird in the in the playground. Um, and he'll ride that for as long as he can get. Twitter's never been a competitive threat to Meta or Facebook or any other company. Frankly, that's not going to change. But I think Mark Zuckerberg, like us, he's making popcorn and enjoying the show. Wow, you know, it'd be interesting to get both of those guys in the same room at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I, would, Car- I would pay for that. <laughs> yeah, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. I'll buy the beer for that, Carmi. Uh, thank you so much, as always, and uh, be well. Have a great night. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. We certainly remember uh, the times of the two Michaels and the five eyes saying we shouldn't be using Huawei and our 5G, and we were very reluctant to, to get involved in that discussion. Uh, the situation around the vaccine with China around the beginning of COVID-19, it seemed that um, the, the federal government was quite soft or, or, or cozy, some would say, with uh, China. That has really now started to change, and even more recently uh, with Minister Melanie Jolie saying, uh, warning companies of the risk of doing business with uh, with China. Why the change in strategy? What does it have to do with the uh, business ramifications of the Indo-Pacific strategy, which is involving other countries? Uh, bringing, uh, bringing in now Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Glad to be so, here. So why do we see a change in tone in the way this government is looking at the Chinese Communist Party? It seems that their position is changing a bit. Right. So let's start with a couple of tent pegs in the ground, if I can. Uh, China is today the world's second largest economy, but it is growing much faster than the number one economy in the world, which is the United States. And nice people like me would tell you that sometime, probably in the next 10 years, China will blow past the United States to become the dominant economy. So if Canada wants to enjoy its same standard of living that we've enjoyed over the last century, we're going to have to find a way to do something with China. Now, put that 10 peg there. Let me just put another 10 peg down. You talked about the two Michaels issue. This goes back to the arrest of Madam Mung. And can you believe, Scott, that was 2018 that uh, that happened. We did the Mm. United States a favor. Of course, by arresting Madam Meng, we got in the crosshairs of China. We saw what a bully China could be. They canceled contracts for canola, or at least they came up with excuses to cancel contracts for canola and sweet peas and, and other kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, when Madam Meng was sent home, suddenly the Michaels were released and, and things were supposed to be back to normal. Well, I think what we've learned through all this, and to your point about the government, I think they were reluctant to take a harder line when we had high profile hostages in China. But now that they're back, we can take a look at this and say, you know, maybe, maybe what we need to do is have a better strategy for all of Asia. Yes, China could be the second largest economy in the world. But in that same 10 year time period, we expect the size of the Indian economy to more than double $5 trillion. We also expect there to be a lot of growth in Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, Korea, Japan is still important in that area. So maybe we need to change our tone here around our, and even today they now call it our uh, uh, Indo-Asian strategy, not to be confused with just strictly a Chinese focus, take a harder line with China, not be as afraid to take a harder line with China, but at the same time, warm up a bit more to some of the other big Asian players 
that maybe we had been ignoring in the decade before. You've talked about this at length in the past and how this is obviously advantageous for anyone to expand their horizons. How does China react to this new strategy by Canada? How do they react with wanting to trade in this Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, probably not well, because in this new Indo-Pacific strategy, one of them is that we're going to uh, also think about increasing our role with Taiwan. And Taiwan, of course, in, in China's terms, in, in mainland China's terms, that what are you talking about? They're part of us, even though we recognize them as a separate country. Um, and so I don't think China is necessarily going to love this. And I don't would not be shocked, Scott, I would not be shocked at all if China chooses to exhibit its displeasure by, again, canceling some contracts or doing some other things. They have proven themselves to be quite bullies on the front. On the other hand, you know, there's the old saying of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, I think there are lots of countries that would welcome Canada taking a harder line, whether it was our very close allies, you described the five eyes, who kind of wondered why it took us so long to take Huawei out of the picture on 5G. But there would be other countries that, that also are feeling this being uh, uh, bullied by China and would welcome Canada taking a harder line. So I think you've got those things coming together. We can't ignore China. And having a strategy there is important. But I think Melanie Jolie also today in her speech said something else terribly interesting, and that was to warn Canadian businesses, mm -hmm. you want to go into China, that's great. I'll respect your decision, but you do so at your own peril. In other words, if you get into trouble in some way and you come knocking, don't necessarily expect your federal government to come running to help you. We're warning you, you need to be very careful doing business there. And frankly, she didn't put it in her speech, but she could give you the exact same warning about Russia. Uh, fascinating that in a sh relatively short period of time, China has gone from the golden goose that everybody wanted to be a part of now to it's a risk. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Now, you may have just noticed that the current premier of China has been renewed for another uh, for a third term. Mm -hmm. So he's almost becoming like Vladimir Putin. It almost appears to be a, a, I'll use the word dictator or at least leader for life. Uh, that really wasn't the plan. I think initially people thought, well, once we get past this guy, he's part of the old guard. Maybe we'll have somebody younger step up as a leader. They'll be more embracing of human rights, for instance, uh, not be so much of a problem with the Uyghurs. You, you've probably heard of them. These are the Turkish minorities in China that are not well treated. And some of the other things, Tibet is another example of all this, maybe the next generation. But so far, uh, President Xi uh, has been very effective at stopping anybody else from coming forward. And therefore, China's policies aren't going to change. And therefore, maybe we need to be the ones that change instead. So how will China react to our change in attitude and not just sitting by and being bullied as in the past? Are they worried that that attitude will spread to other countries? Well, yes, but I think they've already seen it. Um, so China's made a very interesting strategic decision around the Russia-Ukraine uh, uh, conflict, and that is to, to still be an ally of Russia and, if anything, get even closer to Russia understanding that the world would say, what are you doing? We don't understand that. And, and of course, China is basically trying to have their cake and eat it too by saying, we, we don't want any violence. We want everyone to kiss and make up and be peaceful. But in the meantime, if Russia, you'd like to sell us some oil, we'd be happy to buy it from you. And, and so I think, again, they're going to hear that the world doesn't like it. It's not just Canada. 
Uh, yes, we're one of the 10 largest nations in the world, but they're going to take their cues more from places like Germany, Britain, and the United States. But we're joining the chorus now rather than sort of being out there in left field. Can we get as much from this Indo-Pacific strategy as we would have from China, or is it uh, adding to as opposed to replacing? Well, I think I think we could actually get more. You know, if I'm looking all the way to the year 2100, and yes, I realize that's 80 years from now, I'll long be dead by then. But if you ask me which are the dominant economic powers then, not only is China going to be there and India, but these others, Indonesia, the Philippines, will be much bigger economic powers. The United States might be the fourth or fifth dominant economic power in the world. Don't tell that to Donald Trump. He'll probably blow a gasket. But that is the absolute reality today. And so if we do not, if if our country, Canada, does not find a way to work with these countries, find a way to work with them economically, but also politically, we could easily be left behind. And, And we've enjoyed a standard of living because the dominant economic power was 40 miles down the road Uh, across a border. Now that they're an ocean away, we've got to figure out a way to do it. And I'll just add, I say this to my students all the time, this is their big issue as they graduate from McMaster for the next 40, 50 years. They're going to be the ones who are going to have to build those bridges. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, Indo-Pacific Strategy, and China's involvement in all of this as we move forward. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I've got a question for you tonight. I'm going to start with a question. I'm going to ask you a question. That's how we're going to start our segment tonight. Do I have to answer in the form of a question? Is this like a Jeopardy thing? No, any way you want. Um, and, but you can't say it's a bit of both. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you, have to, you have to make the commitment, all right? Um, I've lost it. Where is it? Oh, there it is. I've got too many pieces of paper in front of me. Would you or would our energy, would our energy, our attention, be better spent on saving our health care system or trying to save the planet? Which one do you think we would be more effective at? Saving the health care system or saving the planet. Okay, I assume by we you're talking about Canadians. Yes, sir. Or yes. okay, yeah, yeah. No, not just like people kind. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I would say no, not no. I would say clearly, not humankind. People well, kind. People kind's not a word. That's what the prime minister said. It's humankind. Thank but that's you. okay. Mankind, if you really want to, uh, you know, be grammatically <laughs> oh, correct but create chaos. That's yes. it. You're gonna get hell for that. Yes. Uh, I, I well look. I would argue our healthcare system with one very simple reason, and that is uh, not that the climate is not important, but it doesn't. Ultimately, what we do is such small potatoes. If other countries like China and other places don't do anything, that it doesn't really matter. At least, not relatively speaking. Whereas every person in this country, at one time or another, is going to need our healthcare system. So it's not that there is one that is totally useless and one that is absolutely essential. No. They're both important. No. But you told me I have to pick yep. one. And considering one, our impact is negligible on the world stage, I would go with the healthcare system. 
You just brought up an incredibly valid point, and was sort of my idea here. Uh, what we do on the world stage is negligible. Uh, less than 2% of the world's greenhouse gases come from Canada. So we can throttle everything down. We can shut off everything. And I'm not a climate denier. Please. Uh, the climate's changing. I think we can all see that. Um, but even if we shut everything down, as the Prime Minister wants and his buddy Gerald Butts, uh, what do we get that down to? Another half a point, down to 1.5%, down to 1%. That doesn't make a hill of beans difference in the world, as opposed to helping those with the 20 and 30% uh, 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 pollution, helping them with more renewable energy, more cleaner forms of energy. So why are we working so hard to help climate change when really we're not? We're just trying to make ourselves look good. We're really not helping at all. We're just trying to make it look like we're helping. Well, that's well we're not, constantly pumping green money into a, an economy. That, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting discussion that we don't have nearly enough time for right now. But, for example, electric vehicles are such a big thing now where I can really help the world by having an electric vehicle. Where does your electricity come from? Much of it. It's not all clean. It's, it's not uh, all coming of the water over Niagara uh, Falls and gathering in the collecting the turbines. Um, the, where do the lithium batteries come from? Massive mm-hmm. mining operations. Look, I, I'm not disputing this, but you asked me if I had me to. Me neither. You asked me if I had to uh, try and do more for the climate or more for our healthcare system. Remember this. It's great to have these grandiose ideas, big picture ideas until the day when you need to have a surgery and they tell you, well, the wait list is two years long. Then all of a sudden, I think really you're sitting there thinking if this was the question, uh, yeah, make sure the healthcare system works, put our efforts into making sure the healthcare system works. Look, we, in our family, we had someone, uh, I had someone who needed to have a surgery. It was not uh, a, a life change. It wasn't a life saving surgery. Right. It wasn't urgent, but it was an over a two year wait. Yeah. And we hear about how, you know, we've got the best healthcare system in the world. No, we don't. I, I would take issue with that when you look at how much per capita we spend and how long the wait is. And, you know, look, there, there's things that we do that are way better than the American system. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that any longer we can stand on a pedestal and laugh and point at them and go, your system sucks. Everything about ours is better. No, there are some parts that are better, but there are also some parts that really aren't. So let's fix and that. And that's why, and you know, they're talking about nurses and doctors going down south for more money. Well, it's just not more money. It's just a way better system. It's just, it runs a lot more be. smoothly than ours can be. Yeah, Parts of it. Absolutely. Yeah. The difference is inclusion. I mean, um, you know, up here, everybody gets included down there. Not everybody does. But again, as I remember from um, one of the, C- I think it was the CBS uh, Sunday morning show, 92% of Americans have health care because 92% of Americans are employed. So... Uh, it's not like uh, everybody's throwing down their credit card whenever they're having a heart attack. Uh, it's a combination of the two. But I'll leave it at that because we're out of time, Scott. You've got a big show coming up. We do have a big show coming up. We are talking. i got to tell you this. This is one of the – got a guy coming up from Sweden on the show. Have you ever heard the studies that say act- attractive people do better in life? There are studies yep. that say that. Well, he has looked That's at my excuse. I'm, staying, I'm sticking with it, man. That's why I'm a failure. He has looked at whether or not the same translates into education. Do attractive students get better marks? 
We're going to talk to him about whether or not if you are a good-looking student. Well, as you say, this is my excuse. I wish my dad was still alive that I could explain why my marks were so poor. <laughs> it's, it's genetics, dad. It just dad. wasn't that good-looking. That's right. It's just the bad genetics you gave me, dad. That's coming, that's coming up right off the top. We'll talk about that. And we're going to talk about the Bulldogs owner, possibly now being the owner of the Ottawa Senators or buying in. We'll talk about that. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Thanks, Scott. Have a great one. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer. To have the last word. Barb writes in to say, Scott, as a Canadian taxpayer, I just want my tax dollars for health care to hire doctors and nurses sent from the Bank of Trudeau to the Bank of Ford. I then want the Prime Minister to get out of the way and stay out of it. Trudeau is meddling in provincial jurisdiction again. I am sure Trudeau can find lots of my tax dollars to waste in other ways. Is that too much to ask? By the way, will someone please... Tell me what happened to those field hospitals and ventilators taxpayers paid for via the Bank of Trudeau.